Well, good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 124 of the Prancing Pony Podcast, where tonight, well, there's no accounting for East and West. That's right, folks, and we'll head over to the common room at a great pace on our long shanks. <laughs> long, who wrote this? Long shanks? We don't have long shanks, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, neither one of us will. <laughs> At a great pace, or as great as can be managed, in just a moment. There you go. But first, I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who hopes to renew the old ties of friendship between the Shire and Bree, <laughs> Alan Sisto. Well, not if it means singing, I don't. <laughs> you would do anything for friendship, but you won't do that, as Meatloaf said, is that it? I would well, do anything <laughs> for Bree, but I won't, I won't do, do that. that. <laughs> Well, anyway, speaking of friends, which yeah. we don't have anymore after singing no, that after that song singing, horribly, yeah. <laughs> we've got a friend joining us here tonight through the magic of digital audio recording. And time travel. Well, today we're bringing you another new installment of The North Wing. Folks, you know by now that Barlam and Butterbur had a room or two in the North Wing at the Prancing Pony Inn made special for hobbits. Well, this is our place made special for some of our listeners to give us a chance to get to know them. That's right. Well, rooms at the North Wing are a little bit hard to come by these days, so only our patrons at the Elrond's Honorarium and Kyrdan's Contribution tiers are eligible. So if you'd like to be one of the next patrons to join us, uh, and it's probably going to be next season at this point, be sure to check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod. Yeah, please do that. We've got a little bit of a waiting list for the North Wing right now, as Alan just alluded to, but we'll get yeah. to them all before too long, and we will make room for more if necessary. Absolutely. Well then, why don't we welcome tonight's guest to the North Wing, there are some who call him Tim. That's me. <laughs> Hi, Tim. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you, uh, Alan and Sean, for welcoming me here. Well, it is our pleasure. We're glad to have you with us. Absolutely a pleasure. The first question out of the box is uh, one we ask everybody. Tell us a bit about yourself. Where are you from? What do you do? Uh, what do your loved ones think of all this Tolkien stuff you're so into? Do they think you're a total nerd or do they like it? That sort of thing. Well, I'm lucky enough that I have two kids that are able to enjoy uh, Tolkien Fair. Uh, one of them mm -hmm. is uh, very much a, a geek like me, and the other one just loves them in the movies because uh, okay. of all the, the great action scenes. Good, good. Um, un un unfortunately, he got to see the the Hobbit uh, roll out, and and <laughs> after the second one, it was getting kind of painful. But he he needed to see that third one and wrap up the story. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all need closure during a tragedy. <laughs> closure is important. Tim, we understand that you recently celebrated a birthday. Happy birthday to you. Definitely. Indeed. Happy birthday. And I'm curious, uh, did you did you do anything fun and Tolkien related for your birthday or did you have any ah. Tolkien birthday wish list items? Well, this is actually uh, my birthday gift. Um, I am um, just celebrating a little bit with the family, nice and quiet here in, in Wisconsin. Um, mm -hmm. We're pretty much still like the last death grip of the uh, polar vortex, you know, right, right, yes. um, yeah. kind of thawing out. Um, so this is um, the one kind of exciting thing I get to do. I should I should mention, folks, that, you know, we do record these segments fairly far in advance sometimes. And uh, no matter when you're hearing this, uh, we're recording this in the middle of February. Uh, so Tim's definitely <laughs> talking about some some very icy cold weather. You all remember that polar yeah. vortex that struck the uh, American uh, uh, well, most of America, but certainly the Midwest right. uh, pretty pretty yeah. heavily. So uh, we're glad you've maintained, well, you know, not frozen status. So Yeah. 
<laughs> keep is. keep the uh, keep the blood flowing through those fingers. Yeah, stay um, thawed. And uh, and happy birthday again. Well, I will move on to another yep. question that we ask everybody who comes to the Prancing Pony, and that's when and how did you first discover Tolkien's works? What was your experience like the first time you read it, and why do you keep coming back? Well, the the very first time I bumped into anything about Tolkien, I was a little tiny kid. Um, in, uh, in, uh, I was born in '76 when uh, the first uh, movies came out. You know, with the oh, Hobbit, yes. mm-hmm. and yeah. I saw it in in a, a pre kindergarten uh, class. I got I I remember only getting to see the first half, and then we had to go. Hmm. But it was so enthralling, and there was so much excitement that I wanted to know what happened next. And yeah. back in those days, we had little tiny record players. And my mom went out and we didn't have any ability to get videos. Those were the special things you went to the um, to the library to see when they presented everything special. They, right. they did have these little record players and they had all of the, the Hobbit as a story, an audio story. Oh, wow. And hmm. um, like the, from the movie, like the the, the music yeah. from the movie, and 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 I just I remember listening to that over and over again. There's a whip, there's a way, right? Exactly, <laughs> and I just fell in love with it. And um, I, cool. I, as soon as I started to you know to learn to read, that was one of the the stories I I picked up right right away, and and just wow. fell in love with those stories. That's neat. Was it one of those little square books with uh with pictures on every page and a little record on the inside that sort of reads along with the story? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we're those. about the, we're about the same age. You said you're born in '76, so was I. And, and I had a few of those books too. Of not not of The Hobbit, but I had a few of those of uh, of, of other movies. And uh, man, those things were so cool. That's Definitely. Neat. And I, I was very fortunate that, you know, I had parents that really encouraged me to go out to the library and, and, and stuff, you know, as many books as we could into the, the satchel to take home. And I, mm. I fell in love with fantasy and, you know, in, in, um, in science fiction and uh, mythology and um, in history. And just if, mm. in Tolkien, I find a lot of those married together in, in a way yeah. that's yeah. really exciting, absolutely. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Boy, that speaks – I don't know about you, Sean. Actually, I do because I've known you pretty well now. But doesn't that speak exactly to, to our interests as well? I mean even totally, outside of yeah. Tolkien, history and mythology yep. are always those things that, that attract my attention. And I think Absolutely. that's one of the reasons that Tolkien has such appeal is he yeah. he's able to masterfully weave all of those together. Like he says in uh, the prologue about he'd much prefer a, a history, even a feigned one, mm-hmm. uh, to you know some sort of an allegorical – deal. Yeah. So. I mean, when I first read Tolkien, the, the thing that really caught my attention, and I think I've probably said this before on the show, was the fact that it read more like mythology. It read more like yeah. history than, yeah. you know, one of the many fantasy books that I had read up to that point. I'd read tons of fantasy, but Tolkien was different. It, yeah. it felt like classic stories, like real stories. And that was, mm-hmm. yeah, very cool. And as Tolkien would tell C.S. Lewis, you know, there's value even in the, the false truths mm-hmm. If they speak to a yeah, deeper yeah. truth, you know, they are not yeah. uh, merely lies. Lies through silver. through silver. Yep. Yeah. And I, I've actually, you know, something that really struck me is I had a, a son who's uh, uh, reading *To Kill a Mockingbird* mm. and, and mm. finished up and was doing his paper on that. And I just remember, you know, uh, when when I was reading over one of his papers, how much this kind of spoke to me. This this story that's a total fiction, and yet it it touches on deep truths mm. and the ability for authors to be able to really breathe life into yeah. characters and to really um, be able to take on themes in a way that allow you to really invest yourself in, you know, there's a one phrase about, you know, you know, you can, to really know somebody, you have to be willing to get in their skin mm-hmm. a bit and, 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 and walk around a few miles in their mm-hmm. shoes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, and the way that 
Tolkien does such a great job of making his character in this world so vivid, allows you to really mm-hmm. inhabit them and 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 some of the themes and the ideas that it sparks really fe- seem to resonate. And, and I, I think much more deeply about his work um, and other really great authors like that. Um, you know, I'm thinking of like uh, the first Dune mm, books yeah. and things like that. Some of those can just really pull you in and it's beautiful when you, when you can have yeah, that. It's like Tolkien talked about entering that secondary world, you know, knowing yeah. that it's not real, but mm-hmm. being able to enter it and, and believe in it. That's uh, yeah, it's pretty powerful. I think that answers the second half of that question, which was, what was your experience like and why do you keep coming back, <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, that, definitely. that's exactly why. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to go on to a fairly simple one. Uh, what is your favorite book in the Legendarium and why? And then if you have one, what's your favorite non-Legendarium work? Um, the it, 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 the, the Probably the favorite is the last one I got a chance to read and enjoy, but I, I guess I got to keep going back to The Hobbit because that was the first one that pulled me in and just... You know, it put me on that yeah. that road, and sometimes you never know where that road's <laughs> going to take you. True. You know. As you... So, what about the uh, non-legendarium work? Um, non-legendarium work, I you know, I again, it's one of those things where I have so many different mm. things that I that I find passionate mm-hmm. about. I think the Arthurian legend oh, yeah. um, uh, cycles, I feel really called to. And actually, I was really excited um, when the when you guys had oh yeah, um, yeah Serena Higgins, you know, that Serena commentary Higgins, yeah. discourse on yeah. that. That was really kind of beautiful to be able to participate in. Um, yeah, also a lot of the Norse legendarium, you know, the, being able to just sort of appreciate them and the way that some of the you know, some of the things that Tolkien has done to add yeah. extra depth, you know, has encouraged me to dig mm-hmm. deeper, Good. you know. Good. Awesome. That's great. Well, I've got uh, one more question here and then we'll move on to the lightning round. Um, but my, my last sort of bigger yeah. question is. Do you have a favorite memory of a, a Tolkien-related activity? You know, Alan likes to share the story about how he and his wife once read the books out loud together. Um, I said a few times about how I enjoyed reading the books to my kids when they were newborns. Do you have anything like that? Any favorite memories of uh, of Tolkien in your life? Very recently, um, I had one of my children who had some special needs issues who was struggling a bit. And he started um, deciding to pick up the alphabet that he found, you know, um, because he saw the the, the, the scripting um, in, in some of the, the texts that we had, and he decided he was going to, you know, learn how to write mm. the scripts. And um, for somebody who has autism and who, like, you know, can sometimes, you know, like dive into, you know, a topic and just really get wrapped up in it, the idea that he had so much fun with something he saw that I valued and then he found interesting and then he wanted to share it with me, you know, um, it just it was a beautiful piece when he was struggling a bit to have something that gave him some real good joy you know and, and yeah i'm sure there's lots of other little moments that have been really magical but that really really was something kind of special good good awesome answer tim thanks i agree well we're going to go ahead and move into a lightning round of quick questions and answers so these are really designed to be short i'm going to go ahead and start who's your favorite hobbit i got to say um bilbo okay yeah, fair enough. Uh, what's the one place in Middle Earth you wish you could visit? The Aries of the Eagles. Oh, yeah. Being able yeah, to see the cool. vistas, you know? Yeah. Boy, you're not kidding. What <laughs> yeah. a view that would be. That would be pretty awesome, yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Would you rather hang out with the Noldor or the Tellery? Assuming these are decent, non-murdering Noldor types. Oh, <laughs> I... I... I, I I don't I I, can't, I don't want to itch for any trouble. I'll I'll, I'll hang out with the Tellery. <laughs> <laughs> you can be honest with us if it's the Noldor. Plus, the the Noldor are a little bit judgy. Mm-hmm. 
That is they, true. They are. Yeah, they, they look they down their dead. noses at just about everyone. They probably would do that with me also. <laughs> Baseborn mortal. They'd have all kinds of interesting yeah, names exactly. for you. Just by virtue yeah. of the fact that you're human. Um, do you have a favorite poem or a favorite song in the Legendarium? Um, I, I think the, uh, the the Dwarven song, you know, uh, A Misty Mountain mm. uh, old, you know. The, oh, yeah. And Far I, over the Misty Mountain. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the way that it's able to be inhabited in different ways and um, some of the, the work from that original cartoon, but like the, the movie version, yep. it's, just, it's, it's very moving. Agreed. Yeah. Finally, well, as Sean Bean says, one does not simply walk into Mordor, but if you had to, who would you rather have at your side, Finrod or Baron? Baron, of course. There you go. Excellent. Well, those are some great answers. All Thank right. you, Tim. We have really, truly enjoyed having you here in the North Wing. But I do think it's time for all of us to head back over to the common room to join the rest of the listeners. Thank you again, Tim. And I hope we see you back at our next questions after nightfall, if not sooner. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And now we return you to the podcast in progress. Well, we had a great time talking to Tim, as we do every time we get a chance to meet one of our listeners. Mm -hmm. And we've got a few more reservations lined up for the North Wing folks. So stay tuned for more. Absolutely. Well, next up, we've got a little correction for our previous episode, number 123, on the first half. No, no, yeah, this is a correction. Uh, You're an right. amendment. You're right. uh, yeah. <laughs> no, this is pretty much just a straight up correction. Yeah. And uh, of course, that was the episode on the first half of this chapter. We read mm-hmm. in the beginning of the chapter that according to their own tales, the Brelanders were the original inhabitants and were the descendants of the first men that ever wandered into the west of the Middle World. Right. Well, we read that and then we ended up talking at length about how that makes them apparently either descendants of the original Adine or at least cousins who didn't go all the way to Beleriand and how they've been mm-hmm. here ever since the First Age and so forth. True, true. And according to the Brelanders themselves, that is the story. Mm-hmm. But we need to point out that Appendix F tells us something a little different. Yeah. The Dunlendings were a remnant of the peoples that had dwelt in the vales of the White Mountains in ages past. The dead men of Dunhar were of their kin. But in the dark years, others had removed to the southern dales of the Misty Mountains and thence some had passed into the empty lands as far north as the Barrow Downs. And here's the key. From them came the men of Bree. But long before, these had become subjects of the North Kingdom of Arnor and had taken up the Westron tongue. Yeah, so it seems like what actually happened is that the Brelanders were descended from the Dunlendings, as the appendix right. tells us. And we remember that the Dunlendings themselves were actually related to the Haladin. So that's probably the connection back to the Adine of the First Age that they're thinking of. But the Brelanders themselves didn't actually arrive at Bree until much right. later. Now, the text of the chapter is a little unclear on that, and that's what tripped yeah. us up. But the appendix is much yeah, clearer. Yeah, it certainly is. Now, we also need to correct what I said about them apparently remaining independent throughout the Third Age uh, regarding Arnor and then the successor kingdoms of Arthodyne, Cardolan, and Rudar. Appendix F really does make it clear the Brelanders were subjects of the kingdom of Arnor. And then Appendix A3 yeah. also tells us that, quote, the possession of the Weather Hills and the land westward towards Bree, end quote, was a chief matter of contention between the Splinter Kingdoms and the Third Age. Yeah. And that is why we always say it's important to read the appendices, folks. <laughs> yes, it is. We need to follow our own advice on that. Absolutely. And now, with that straightened out, let's check out the karaoke party in the common room over at the real Prancing Pony. Well, now, don't be hasty. Before we do, uh-huh. I actually want to let folks know that for our next episode, we're going to be doing something a little different for our intro segment. Remember uh, what yes, we've got planned yes, for that? I do. 
Folks, as I'm sure you all know by now, the long-anticipated biographical film Tolkien, starring Nicholas Holt and Lily Collins, opened in the U.S. this weekend. Mm-hmm. Well, next week, instead of doing another installment of one of our usual intro segments, we've decided to talk about the movie for a few minutes before we jump into our usual chapter discussion on Chapter 10. Going to kind of share our thoughts on the movie with a little uh, Siskel and Ebert routine. Well, hopefully the movie won't merit our usual Statler and Waldorf routine instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that. But you'd you know yeah. better than I do because as That's of recording true. this uh, a few weeks ago through the magic of uh, yes. time travel, I still haven't seen <laughs> yeah. the, the movie as of recording this. But you saw no. it early out there in L.A., didn't you? I did. In fact, I saw it all the way back on December 13th, actually, at a special advanced screening thanks to a post from the OneRing.net that I happened to catch in time. I also got to be a part of a small focus group afterwards to answer a few questions about it. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Now, I couldn't say anything about it, about what I saw that night until now. I couldn't talk about it on Facebook, couldn't talk about it on the podcast. But the movie's been released, or as I should say, the movie will have been released by the time (laughs) this recording gets released. It's that time it's travel that and the, the difficulties it presents for conjugating your verbs. All the tenses. It's just really hard. <laughs> yeah. But I had to sign an NDA, and I mean, they were pretty serious about it. Mm, of course, yeah. But of course, that's no longer an effect. Now, here's the thing, though. The film that I saw five months ago might turn out to be a little bit or even rather different from the one that we just saw this weekend that, we, that, <laughs> that we'll talk right, about yeah, yeah. Right, in the next yeah. episode. Next week, yeah. Exactly. So I'm hesitant to go into too much detail. I will try to give you a couple of things that I liked, a couple of things I didn't, and we'll see if they happen to be still in the film. Okay. Uh, on the plus side, I have to say the costuming, the sets, the locations, cinematography were all really, really good. Uh, I'd even go so far as to say the casting was reasonably good. I have to admit I never really quite saw Tolkien in Nicholas Holt, though he did a, a fantastic mm. job uh, in, ter- in terms of his acting. Probably a situation where you know Tolkien so well that That's like, the thing. could yeah. anybody play him? I've I'm seen guessing. so many pictures and, and yeah. you know, listened to him talk so much. And that isn't that isn't who yeah. Nicholas Holt was. But yeah. other than that particular aspect of it, I thought the casting was good. I, I really like some of the details. There was a very poignant moment at the end, near the end, I should say, when Tolkien was reading, reading that letter from G.B. Smith. And it was, as I recall it, word for word, that letter that went, my chief consolation is that if I am scuppered tonight, there will still be left mm. a member of the TCBS to voice what I dreamed and what we all agreed upon. And it goes on to say, may God bless you, my dear John Ronald, and may you say the things I have tried to say long after I am not there to say them, if such be my lot. Mm, yeah. I will admit to needing my handkerchief at that moment. That was a real <laughs> you know, moment of, of just poignancy, of, of, of sorrow. Yeah. Such a powerful thing to hear. Oh, there's no shame in that, man. I, none, I, I, none at right all. There with you, yeah. And it just totally made me think of uh, of reading John Garth's book and all yeah. those moments. Yeah, and there were some yeah. changes though that I didn't particularly care for. That's the problem. Uh, I, I doubt they're going to change all of these things. So it's probably these are going to be in the story. Uh, they had Tolkien and Edith reuniting right as Tolkien was shipping out, uh, and thus not getting married until after he came back. Of course, the real oh, story. Okay. They were reunited and engaged in January of 1913, three years before they were married, three years before he shipped out. And in fact, when he was married, he wasn't getting on the boat like they showed in the movie. He was in training uh, and not yet at the front, or he would still end up there three months later. Right. A bit more dramatic that way, I guess. Oh, yeah. Of course. I mean, that very, you know, it's a moment on the docks where he's going for his, going to his boat and he turns around and sees her. You know, it's typical cinematic stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. 
It also seemed, though, like they had the TCBS starting a lot earlier than it really did. They looked like like junior high boys, not the 19-year-old young men that they actually were when they first mm. formed the TCBS. Uh, mm-hmm. So it made it a little different for me, though I have to say at least the kids they had playing the young versions of all of them were were very good. The casting there was good. And there were things that were missed that I didn't – why would you not include this, right? In the version that I saw, they didn't include – the coal trucks with the Welsh language on them, right? I, mm. I totally envisioned that when I'm seeing his, you know, his, his yeah. time as a young yeah. child. I'm thinking that's such a formative moment. Yeah. But then there were things that were added that totally didn't fit. Uh, they had Tolkien, after finding out that Edith was engaged to another man, just absolutely three sheets to the wind drunk. I mean, of course he drank. We know that. But I just yeah. don't imagine him walking around totally plastered and making a fool of himself. <laughs> I mean, if he's going to make a fool of himself, it's going to be stealing a bus and driving it to the Carfax Tower, right? <laughs> right? And putting on a, a the bear mask or the you know, some sort of goofy thing. But this was just a little bit more like angry. I don't know. It just felt it very. It felt very modern and and not in character of Tolkien. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, but that's a, okay. Yeah, I'll I'll be watching for that when I actually yeah. do see. So those the are just some little things. I didn't want to talk about the big grand scope of the film so much because I don't know what that's really going to be like. I, I know that they talked in the focus group about making changes, and we'll see if they made them. I'll, I'll be very interested. There were a couple other things that I won't talk about until we uh, include that in our our episode next week. But overall, I kind of oh. look at this like the Jackson films in in one way, uh, not because they were fantastic like the first three. I look at this like those because I hope it drives people to the books. I hope it makes people pick up yeah. Humphrey Carpenter's, John Garth's, Tom Shippey's, uh, uh, Raymond Edwards. But I'll save the rest of my thoughts for the final version of the film in the next episode. You know, I've actually talked to some some Tolkien fans online. And, you know, we've talked about the possibility of, like, you know, passing out John Garth's book after <laughs> screenings of, of, yes. of the movie. Yeah, I don't have that kind of money to buy no. like a case of copies of Tolkien and the Great Seriously. War. Seriously, yeah. But I kind of would love to. Like, ha- having not seen it yet, I can just imagine I'm probably going to walk out of it thinking, yeah, there's a lot of things I want to say yeah. to people who've seen it, you know? Exactly. But I don't have, uh, have five thousand dollars per screening to hand out, you know, five hundred right, copies of a book. Hand out a copy of that book to everybody. But uh, <laughs> if uh, yeah. maybe John Garth has an opportunity there to just like pass out business cards after Seriously. after one you of those read my screenings, read just my like, book. Read here's my, my book. website, buy my book. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> John, if you're listening, uh, yeah, take that idea and there you run go, with run it, with please. it. You don't even have to give us a commission; <laughs> just go. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's great. Uh, now yeah. I'm really intrigued. I'm looking forward yeah. to seeing the movie. Since it just came out a couple of days ago, right. when you're listening to this in the future, uh, there <laughs> is, just simply isn't enough time for us to see the movie, take notes, well, in your case, see it again, take yeah. notes and record and edit a segment and get it out in today's episode. Yeah. So be sure to check out next week's release, episode 125, where we'll have both of our thoughts on the movie as mm-hmm. it was released. Exactly. Yeah. We we only have 36 hours between the time we might have both seen it and the time this episode yeah. airs. There was just no way we could have gotten it done. So we're, we're leaving let's a face blank it, it'll in be the next the, episode. It'll be the weekend and it, yeah, it's just yeah. it's tough. So Next week. Yep, for sure. So now I think it's time to head into the common room for Frodo's uh, show-stopping musical number, right? Ba-ba-ba, not so fast again. Oh, uh, we okay. still have the matter of a few <laughs> uh, a few corrections, a dedenda, a corrigenda to bring up before we begin. Oh, this okay. is going back to our questions after nightfall episode a few weeks ago, uh, oh. number one seventeen. Yeah, you know where I'm going with this. We get, I we got corrected fr- online. I, 
I know, I know. And we have to do this. We do. So, folks, near the end of that episode, we answered a question about why two unrelated characters were named Ecthelion, Ecthelion of the Fountain of Gondolin, and Ecthelion Steward of Gondor, the father of Denethor. Now, we ended up talking quite a bit about how men reuse names and how men even reuse elvish names, but that Mm -hmm. it shouldn't surprise us that a man like Denethor of Gondor would be named after an elvish hero of the First Age. Yeah, and that's all true. I mean, in fact, men reuse names so much that both Denethor the Steward from Lord of the Rings and his father, Ecthelion, were both the second of their name just in the line of stewards. That's true, but along the way, we made a blanket statement that you won't find elves reusing names. Well, it did not take long after releasing the show for a flood of listeners, or maybe it was a trickle, I don't know, to remind us of how wrong that was. It was a steady stream. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Listener Baragon pointed out that the name Rumil is repeated, first as the lore master of Amon in the First Age, who invented the first writing system, and then usurped by that Feanor guy. Uh, and, and then right. there was Rumil the border guard in Lothlorien, who was Haldir's brother. Now, hang on. I'm not going to defend Feanor ever, but <laughs> come on. The Tanguar were a little bit of an improvement know, on they were. the Serati. Of okay. course they were. Let's give him that one. Of course least. I'll give him that. I'll even give him the, the, the Palantir. <laughs> I'll even give him the Silmarils, for crying out loud. They were beautiful. Yeah, they were They were great. Until... They were beautiful. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from that, yeah, before, before we start we really defending far, Feanor too much, yeah. um, Baragond also pointed out that, well, speaking of Feanor, that Finway actually named all of his sons Finway yes, as their father did. names. Yes, he did. Though, though he later added prefixes to their names. And of course, you know, we remember them by different names, but yeah. it's he's absolutely right. Feanor's father name after the prefix was added, was Kuru Finway. Right. Fingolfin's was Nola Finway. And then Finarfin was Ara Finway. All that is found in the shibboleth of Feanor in the peoples of Middle-earth. That's right. As you all know now, Finway was truly the George Foreman of the First Age. <laughs> <laughs> Come here, George. Hey, George. George. Who, do you, uh, who are you talking to, Dad? <laughs> me or my sister? <laughs> Oh, yep. uh, they're all Georges, yep. yes. Good, good stuff. I bet Fenway probably invented a, a fat-reducing grill, too. I bet he did. I bet he did. I'm, I mean, I'm those trying Mildor, to picture the meme between Fenway and George Foreman. That's hilarious. <laughs> and you got George Foreman saying, anyway. yeah, but at least none of my sons killed anybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> none of my sons ever kinslayed the tellery <laughs> for some boats. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where we're going with I'm that. I'm not going anywhere with that. Let's move on. Let's move on. Another listener on Twitter, Chris B., pointed out that there was a Legolas Greenleaf at the fall of Gondolin in the Book of Lost Tales. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Now, okay, you know, given the fact that the Book of Lost Tales was never completely reconciled with the later Legendarium, kind of hard to say for sure whether Tolkien really intended for there to be two characters named Legolas in the timeline or whether he just... He'd, he'd written that name before with the Book of Lost Tales, and he just didn't want to waste a good name that right. might not otherwise see That may be the case so there, yeah. He gave it to an elf in Lord of the Rings. But we don't know. I mean, we no. can't brush over that. It is entirely possible that Tolkien did intend for there to be two Legolas Greenleafs that, in the time. That is possible. But even if we could brush over it, our friend Tanya P. reminded us that there were two Gelmirs that were much closer together in the timeline. Gelmir, oh, son yeah. of Gurlin, brother of Gwyndor. He was the one who was butchered by Morgoth's forces uh, right before the Nirnaeth Arnoidiad. That enraged right. Gwyndor, which led him to boldly charge and then get captured alive. Uh, right. <laughs> only to end up being dead thanks to Turin later on. 
Yeah. And then yep. there was Gelmir. That's, that's what happens. Exactly. That's what happens. <laughs> that's what happens when you listen to Turin. But speaking of Turin and somebody Turin didn't listen to, there was Gelmir of Gelmir and Arminas fame who delivered Ulmo's right. message to Nargothrond, warning Oradreth to cast the stones of your pride into the Loud River. Yeah. Yeah. So we did pretty much botch that yeah, one. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, appreciate, appreciate our listeners bringing that up. Oh, I think always. it's just, you know, we're trying to make a trying to make a generalization and, you know, well, this is what happens when exactly. we do that. Special thanks to Tanya, though, for helping us out by finding the passage in the history of Middle-earth that we were thinking of that led to this, let's call it an overgeneralization. <laughs> let's. Uh, in, in the peoples of Middle-earth, in an essay on Glorfindel, whom, wow, we're going to be getting to him really soon, aren't we? Not soon enough, um, but yeah, <laughs> I'm looking forward to uh, it. Just a, just a few chapters, yeah. man. It's, it's, it's pretty close, but... Well, Tolkien rationalized that the Glorfindel who fell at Gondolin in the First Age must be the same as the Glorfindel we meet in The Lord of the Rings. And it's in part because he says the reduplication of names between two people named Glorfindel, though possible, would not be credible. No other major character in the Elvish legends, as reported in The Silmarillion and The Lord of the Rings, has a name borne by another Elvish person of importance. Ah, importance. So it, it just wouldn't be credible. And I think he means, you know, for us, the reader, mm, uh, for mm-hmm. there to be two different important Elvish characters named Glorfindel. Right. Though it was technically possible. And and I would add that none of that precludes the idea of men naming their children after important characters oh, from course. Elvish legends, as we said. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Tanya also pointed us to Laws and Customs Among the Eldar, one of my favorite essays, mm-hmm. uh, in Morgoth's Ring, where Tolkien says, in elder times, the chosen name or second name was usually freshly devised, and though framed according to the structure of the language of the day, it often had no previous significance. In later ages, when there was a great abundance of names already in existence, it was more often selected from names that were known. So by the third age, it wasn't just possible for an elf born to be given an existing name, but apparently it was more common than we know, based on the important characters we see in the story. There you go. So enough about that one. There is another there's one. More? That we've got to correct but wait, there's more. Wait, there's more. That's that's the way we do it at the Prancing Pony Podcast. When we flub, we flub big. That's right. Earlier in that same episode, I alluded to a comment that we had made in an episode that hadn't been released yet at the time, right. but has been as of now, about the Witch King's presence in Eriador and the fact that he was awakening evil things mm-hmm. just by by being there. And I said something to the effect of, and that's just with a lesser ring on his finger. Mm-hmm. Well, A listener named Ethan F. messaged us and pointed out that by the time of the War of the Ring, the Nazgul no longer wear their rings. Sauron holds them. And the Lord of the Rings is somewhat unclear on that, which is why I was confused. I will admit I I was just completely – I was just wrong about that. The reason I was confused is because in the Council of Elrond, when Gandalf is working through uh, the process of elimination to prove that Frodo's ring is the one ring, he says, the nine the Nazgul keep, the seven are taken Ah, or destroyed, the three we know of. Now, that makes it sound like the Nazgul do have their own rings. That's true. And that's why I thought that. That's true. But elsewhere in the Shadow of the Past, Gandalf tells Frodo the nine he has gathered to himself. Now, that's admittedly a little vague. Gathered could mean that the Sauron holds the rings personally or just that he's got them accounted for and he's gathered the nine, uh, you know, the ringwraiths that he's got the them or something. Yeah, under right. his power, yeah. and which could mean that they're still worn by the ringwraiths who are his slaves. I'll admit, I interpreted it the second way. I thought Sauron had gathered the, you know, the ring wraiths to him and he was letting them wear their rings. But, you know, since they're completely under his power, he controls them anyway. So those are both statements made by Gandalf. But we should remember, as Tolkien himself might say, because he says it about Treebeard in one of his letters, 
Gandalf is just a character in Tolkien's story, and he doesn't necessarily know or understand everything. That's right. If you go beyond the Lord of the Rings, there is quite a bit of commentary out there that clearly contradicts the idea that the ring rates wear their rings in the Third Age. Yeah, it's pretty clear once you get to Unfinished Tales. It is, yeah. In The Hunt for the Ring in Unfinished Tales, Tolkien calls the Nazgul Sauron's mightiest servants, who had no will but his own, being each utterly subservient to the ring that had enslaved him, which Sauron held. There you go. And a little later in another version of that story in the same section, Tolkien sort of re- restates that by saying the Nazgul are entirely enslaved to their nine rings, which he, Sauron, now himself held. Precisely. That's what I was thinking. I just missed it when you mentioned the Witch King's ring. Uh, in in yeah. letter 246 to Eileen Elgar, Tolkien echoed that by saying that Sauron, quote, still through their nine rings, which he held, had primary control of the ring rates wills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all very conclusive that Tolkien yeah. believed Sauron held the nine rings and the Nazgul themselves did not wear yep. them by the time of the third age. Now, I still stand by the point that we were both trying to make, which is that evil attracts evil, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's why we do have such a great show. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, since the Witch King's power is like, come on, it's like 99.99999% the ring at this point. Well, yeah, because if the ring ceased to be, he would would cease to be. He would cease to be. So he's pretty much, you know, walking ring power. That is true. I will say, even though I was incorrect in one very, very important detail, and I won't play that, I think the comparison was still a good one, right? 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 Yes, I think so. <laughs> I like letting you hang there. That was fun. <laughs> Thank you. To Thank get you for that. Time. Anyway, now I think it's probably time for us to get into the chapter discussion, don't you yeah. think? Please say yes, that. yes. I think it's time to put these corrections behind us as soon as possible. And we're going to pick up Huzzah. exactly where we left off at the end of last week's episode after Frodo pointed to this man in the corner and said, who is that? Who is that guy? Why didn't you introduce him? Exactly. Now? I've got you reading the first bit there. Him? said the landlord in an answering whisper, cocking an eye without turning his head. I don't rightly know. He's one of the wandering folk, rangers we call them. He seldom talks, not but what he can tell a rare tale when he has the mind. He disappears for a month or a year and then he pops up again. He was in and out pretty often last spring, but I haven't seen him about lately. What his right name is I've never heard, but he's known round here as Strider. Goes about at a great pace on his long shanks, though he don't tell nobody what cause he has to hurry. But there's no accounting for east and west, as we say in Bree, meaning the rangers and the shire folk, begging your pardon. Funny you should ask about him. But at that moment, Mr. Butterbur was called away by a demand for more ale, and his last remark remained unexplained. Which is constantly a problem, it seems, with him, by the way. It's sort of his M.O., <laughs> He's constantly about to tell you something really interesting before somebody exactly. needs another beer. Rangers, by the way, in the local dialect of Brie is actually on la shock. I just wanted to know that. <laughs> oh, well done. Oh. It's been far too long. I know. We haven't had a Bab 5 reference in ages. A Bab 5 reference in yeah. so long. Aragorn's going to introduce himself and say, we live for the one, we die for the one. <laughs> so, anyway. He Love does that. have that green stone. He does, he yeah. Oh, I, I'm pretty sure the green stone on Aragorn came before the green stone on Straczynski's I'm show. I'm pretty sure J. Michael Straczynski was thinking of the green stone. I'm fairly Aragorn sure he was. Oh, goodness. 
Great stuff. I love how once again it triggers this memory and then Parliament just completely forgets. Just goes up. I'm sorry. Somebody needs another drink. Is it fair to say that when I first read this as a teenager, I didn't understand that? And now as a 50-year-old with two children, I totally get it. No. Yeah. My brain will yeah. very often go, what was I just saying? Yeah. What was I just talking yeah. about? Oh, man, I forget. Well, my brain is constantly full of like four things that I'm going to do in a certain order yes. as soon as I'm done with. The three things that I was just asked to do by <laughs> exactly. my kids. Exactly. Yeah. And by the time I've done two of them, I forget what that third one is, let alone what the other four were. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 I go through a lot of notebooks in my house. <laughs> I'm constantly telling uh, the uh, assistant who shall remain nameless, let's see, order me paper towels. I, I, I'm constantly <laughs> telling her to remind me about something. So I get Barlaman these days. I really do. Anyway. Yep. Yep. The things being a parent will do to you. Yes, it is. Sorry. And there we are with more of our more dad, dad jokes. jokes. We're going to catch more grief for that. Sorry, folks. It's who we are. We're dads. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and pick up there. I know there's not a lot there. I want to pick up the very next segment, and then we'll kind of discuss the whole bit. Okay. Frodo found that Strider was now looking at him, as if he had heard or guessed all that had been said. Presently, with a wave of his hand and a nod, he invited Frodo to come over and sit by him. As Frodo drew near, he threw back his hood showing a shaggy head of dark hair flecked with gray, and in a pale, stern face, a pair of keen gray eyes. I'm called Strider, he said in a low voice. I'm very pleased to meet you, Master Underhill, if old Butterbur got your name right. He did, said Frodo stiffly. He felt far from comfortable under the stare of those keen eyes. Well, Master Underhill, said Strider, if I were you, I should stop your young friends from talking too much. Drink, fire, and chance meeting are pleasant enough, but, well, this isn't the Shire. There are queer folk about. Though I say it, it shouldn't, you may think, he added with a wry smile, seeing Frodo's glance. And there have been even stranger travelers through Bree lately. He went on, watching Frodo's face. Frodo returned his gaze but said nothing, and Strider made no further sign. I like that. I like that he mm-hmm. said his piece and he's done. He's read yeah. Zig Ziglar's book about closing. Whoever talks first loses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about it. Yeah. Such, it's such a cool introduction to this character. Isn't and it? And there's just so much there. Uh, we don't really know anything about who he is yet, but there's no. just so much potential there. Even, you know, there's just so many clues here that there's more to this guy. Then he appears. Oh, yeah. Well, that, you the, know, the pale, stern face, but the pair of keen gray eyes, and just a few mm-hmm. lines later, the stare of those keen eyes. That tells yeah. you a lot, I think, about who he is and why Frodo feels just a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Even the, you know, the flecks of gray in his hair, you know, a sign. This oh, is yeah. A, he's this not guy's a young been man. around. He's, he's older than he looks. Yeah. yeah. He's, uh, he's seen some of the world. Mm-hmm. I love how he, he implies that, sure enough, that's not really your name. <laughs> Master right. yeah. Underhill, if Butterbur um, got your name yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, the wisdom he offers is is spot on. Uh, you know, you need to stop your, your friends from, from talking, too from much, talking yeah. so much. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these guys, you know, these guys are getting sloppy. They need to be yeah. more on their guard. And, Loose lips sink you know, ships. Yeah. It, yeah. And he reminds Loose lips sink fellowships. Oh, oh, wow. Oh, that's, wow. That's not even good. No, even no, just, I'm not even sure. <laughs> that's just terrible. But yeah, there are queer folk about. I, uh-huh. I love that he acknowledges that, you know, that sounds very strange coming from somebody looking like him. Yeah, know? exactly. Exactly. The wry smile. Mm-hmm. I like that. We start to see already a little bit of humanity from him, a little bit of yeah. uh, 
humility as well. Uh, I think he yeah, understands definitely. how he comes across. I think that's a good point, that humility, because, you know, Aragorn does, Aragorn's one of those characters, especially if you read the books after you've seen the movies, Aragorn in the books can come across as a little haughty because mm-hmm. he is more sure of himself than he is oh, in the yeah. movies. Thankfully, I think, I think book Aragorn is better than movie Aragorn in a lot of ways. Uh, I agree. No offense to Viggo Mortensen, who played well, that no, character very well. Fine, it right. just wasn't, it wasn't really the character from the book. Right. But. Yeah, uh, I can't remember where I was going with that, but uh, oh yeah, the humility. It was you know because he he does have this haughty side, but you're right, he's got this he's got this humble side as well, and I think that's mm-hmm. that's really cool. There's a there's a balance there in his character. There really is. Now they're starting to move on these friends into other stories, and I've got you telling us exactly what's going on here. Oh, Pippin! All right, I know, silly Pip. To his alarm, Frodo became aware that the ridiculous young Took encouraged by his success with the fat mayor of Mitchell Delving, was now actually giving a comic account of Bilbo's farewell party. He was already giving an imitation of the speech and was drawing near to the astonishing disappearance. Oh, just come on. I know. It's like, dude, come on. Just, are you you to think, man? Don't you know everybody's telling stories about mad baggins? All right. (sighs) Anyway. Okay, back to the text. Yes. Frodo was annoyed. It was a harmless enough tale for most of the local hobbits, no doubt. Just a funny story about those funny people away beyond the river. But some, old Butterbur, for instance, knew a thing or two, and had probably heard rumors long ago about Bilbo's vanishing. It would bring the name of Baggins to their minds, especially if there had been inquiries in Bree after that name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which is why Strider essentially tells him, you, you need to do something right now. Yeah. Pippin just not paying attention, really. Boy, does he, though. I know we'll get there in a minute. Yeah, we'll get there. (laughs) I didn't tell you to do that, Frodo. (laughs) Yeah. You should do anything, but don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. Talk about uh, people uh, making poor choices when they're drunk. You were talking about the Tolkien (laughs) biopic earlier. That's right. I mean, that's kind of what's going on all over this chapter. Just Pippin's just getting, he's getting too comfortable He's loving oh, yeah. the attention. Oh, he and, does. Yeah. 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 Encouraged by his success. His success mm-hmm. with that story, the story that got him laughs mm-hmm. and applause and attention. Yeah, like, and yeah. All right. What other good stories do I have? Oh, right. here's one. Yeah. And this is, I think it's no surprise that it's the youngest of the three travelers with him. That makes perfect sense. You yeah. Know, I mean, it, it, not to, I'm not bashing on youth. This isn't an anti-millennial. No, no, it, <laughs> this is just, no, it's, it's a matter of, uh, Experience, wisdom, and, and discretion, and lack, and, yeah. and lack of judgment. Yeah, yeah, that's all it is. Yeah, he's, and let's face it, Pippin is as the youngest of the hobbits. He's probably used to taking orders from Frodo and Mary, mm-hmm. not Sam so much. But no, well, no, no, no. But you can certainly understand how now that he's got a taste of, you know, this limelight, so to speak. He he really wants. He's kind of, he's kind of going to go for it. You know, he wants to get more attention. He wants to get the laughs. Yeah, you know. I'm just, I can just hear the lyrics to the Rush song, Limelight, right now. Well, I was thinking of the lyrics, not the opening guitar riff that you're yeah. very, you know, mediocre reproduction. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. That's what we, yeah, Medi- we Mediocre go. guitar scat is my forte. 
<laughs> I was kind of hoping you would jump in and sing it, but I guess I didn't. I didn't do enough bars for you. Well, yeah, you got to give me. A, there's a longer lead in than that. I got to make yeah. you do the mediocre do, guitar do, stuff for do, a while longer. Do, 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 do. Right. No, I'm not going to do that. Anyway, so <laughs> so Frodo. The okay. There you go. Approaches <laughs> the unreal. Approaches the unreal. Approaches the unreal. That's right. Yeah. For yeah. those who think and be okay. I got to stop because I'll be here all night. <laughs> you don't want to see me at a Rush concert. Cage. I am I am belting the entire time at a Rush concert. I bet concert. you are. I bet you are. All right. So Frodo, <laughs> of course, realizes we're nearing disaster here, and he can't think necessarily of what to do, so he just jumps up and does something, and that's where I'm going to mm-hmm. pick up. All right. Frodo jumped up and stood on a table. Well, there's your problem. I mean, really, I mean, can we just stop right there and point out that standing <laughs> on a table is Any solution to any problem that involves jumping up and standing on a table in a bar, yeah. It's probably a bad solution. <laughs> I mean, really, that's enough right there. Yeah. So Frodo jumped up and stood on a table and began to talk. The attention of Pippin's audience was disturbed. Some of the hobbits looked at Frodo and laughed and clapped, thinking that Mr. Underhill had taken as much ale as was good for him. Frodo suddenly felt very foolish and found himself, as was his habit when making a speech, fingering the things in his pocket. He felt the ring on its chain, and quite unaccountably, the desire came over him to slip it on and vanish out of the silly situation. It seemed to him, somehow, as if the suggestion came to him from outside, from someone or something in the room. He resisted the temptation firmly and clasped the ring in his hand, as if to keep a hold on it and prevent it from escaping or doing any mischief. At any rate, it gave him no inspiration. He spoke a few suitable words, as they would have said in the Shire. We are all very much gratified by the kindness of your reception, and I venture to hope that my brief visit will help to renew the old ties of friendship between the Shire and Bree. And then he hesitated and coughed. Everyone in the room was now looking at him. A song, shouted one of the hobbits. A song, a song, shouted all the others. Come on now, master, sing us something we haven't heard before. For a moment, Frodo stood gaping. Then, in desperation, he began a ridiculous song that Bilbo had been rather fond of, and indeed rather proud of, for he had made up the words himself. It was about an inn, and that is probably why it came into Frodo's mind just then. I want to stop and I want to say something about this passage. Okay. Because I think we've been a little bit too hard on Frodo. We're sitting here talking about Mm. how it was, you know, a foolish thing to do to get up on this table and 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 sing this song. In reality, mm-hmm. this is no a choice. good idea. Yeah, he had yeah, no yeah. choice. And this is a good idea right now. And he yes. did get the attention of Pippin's audience. Getting up there, job done. And start, yeah, exactly. Starting to give this speech to get people's attention away from Pippin and mm-hmm. whatever he's going to say next. Brilliant idea. Yes. Then they ask for a song. Okay. Maybe Pippin, what do you have? What, what can we sing, Pippin? <laughs> <laughs> and Pippin gets up and sings the ballad of Bilbo Baggins. Oh, well, yeah, not that the, would be Not bad. the Nimoy version. Not but... the, no, really? That would be a shame. I'd love to hear the Leonard Nimoy version. That'd be great. Um, but no, I mean, it's it's a pretty good idea. Okay, they ask for a song. Maybe you can keep it going for like one song. It, it, he's not making a mistake yet. No, not yet. I think You're the mistake right. comes later. You're right. And I just want to be fair to Frodo here. I do too. You're, you, make, you make a good point. Before we discuss the actual song itself, though, I think we need to hear just a little bit of it. What do you think? I think so. Let's do it. There is an inn, a merry old inn, beneath an old grey hill. And there they brew a beer so brown, and the man in the moon himself came down one night to drink his fill. 
The ostler has a tipsy cat that plays a five-string fiddle, and up and down he runs his bow, now squeaking high, now purring low, now sawing in the middle. The landlord keeps a little dog that's mighty fond of jokes. When there's good cheer among the guests, he cocks an ear at all the jests and laughs until he jokes. I love that. <laughs> Such a rare pleasure to be able to include just a, a little snippet of the professor himself. But yeah, so that awesome. Was great the, stuff. The J.R.R. Tolkien audio collection is so great. Highly recommended, folks, and it will yeah. be in the show notes. So pick that yeah. up when you can. Well, let's talk about this song a little bit, shall we? Yeah, um, plenty here, yeah. Yeah, there, there really is. And this is just one of my favorite moments in, in this book, honestly, yeah. I, I have to say. Such a wonderful moment, it is. Yeah. I'll start by talking a little bit about a might have been. Uh, Hammond mm -hmm. and Skull mentioned that originally this was supposed to be an early version of the troll song Yeah, that Sam is going to sing later on in Flight to the Ford. And we'll talk mm -hmm. a little bit more on that in a bit, I know. We will. But for now, we're going to talk about this version. And it's a revision of a poem that Tolkien wrote called The Cat and the Fiddle, A Nursery Rhyme Undone and Its Scandalous Secret Unlocked, which was published <laughs> in a journal in 1923. I love that original title. It gives this sort Isn't of Isn't that great? This like this, you know, the secret history of 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 what happened. It's almost like a clickbait headline in 1923. <laughs> right. Scandalous yeah, secret exactly. unlocked. Yeah. Yeah. What really happened the night the cat <laughs> and played the fiddle. Yeah. Yeah. Now this version of the poem was republished later on as The Man in the Moon Stayed Up Too Late in The mm -hmm. Adventures of Tom Bombadil, which right. continues a trend that we've seen a few times now, but Really close ties between this first book of Lord of the Rings and Poems and Adventures of Tom Bombadil, which is, is yeah, just fascinating yeah. to me. Now, there is also a sort of a companion poem that appears immediately after this one in Adventures of Tom Bombadil called mm -hmm. The Man in the Moon Came Down Too Soon. But right. Tolkien actually tells us that that was probably based on a Gondorian source, while this poem oh, yeah, was yeah. written by Bilbo, as the text tells us. Well, it's very obviously based on the nursery rhyme, Hey Diddle Diddle, mm -hmm. which Tolkien underscores, and I love the way he says this, by saying that only a few words of it are now remembered. That's well, awesome. Yeah. Isn't it? it uh, Hammond and Skull share this observation from George Burke Johnston, who suggested that Tolkien might also have been inspired by 19th century fantasy author George MacDonald, who included his own version of the nursery rhyme, The True History of the Cat and the Fiddle, in his book, At the Back of the North Wind, which was published in 1871. And because Tolkien says that this is the full version of this poem that we can only remember a few words of now, this is another example right. of one of my favorite things in Tolkien's work, which is this idea of these asterisk realities that Tom Shippey talks about. Yeah, yeah. These reconstructed ancestors of later stories and poems and myths and so on. Shippey actually discusses this idea in relation to both of Tolkien's Man in the Moon poems uh, at some length in Road to Middle-Earth, and I'll read a little bit of that here. Mm -hmm. He says, What they do is to provide a narrative and semi-rational frame for the string of totally irrational non-sequiturs, which we now call nursery rhymes. How could the cow jump over the moon? Well, it might if the moon were a kind of vehicle parked on the village green while its driver had a drink. If one assumes a long tradition of idle children repeating thoughtless tales in increasing confusion, one might think that poems like Tolkien's were the remote ancestors of the modern rhymes. They are asterisk poems. They also contain, mm -hmm. at least in their early versions, hints of mythological significance. The man in the moon who fails to drive his chariot while mortals panic and his white horses champ their silver bits and the sun comes up to overtake him. 
You know, that last point about the hints of mythological significance, that's really curious because this is a very different mythology about the man and the moon than what we learn in the Silmarillion mm-hmm. about the two trees and then about Tilion, who guides the moon, right. and the wayward and uncertain nature of his course across the sky, which causes the lunar phenomena from phases to eclipses. Right. And Hammond and Skull, going back to some of their commentary on this, they point out that the man and the moon must be assumed to represent stories and legends among men and hobbits who had little idea of the real state of affairs in Arda, you know, little knowledge of these stories from the Silmarillion. Now, this poem was written by Bilbo, who we tend to think of as more enlightened than well, most other people in the Shire, maybe everybody else in the Shire at sure, this point. maybe, yeah. But by the time Frodo last saw him, he wasn't quite the lore master that he would later become after spending some time in Rivendell. So, right. you know, he, he probably didn't know the whole true story from the Silmarillion when he wrote this. But as Hammond and Skull say, the true story, some, some memory of the true story somewhere, evidently gave mm-hmm. rise to stories such as the one told in this poem. You almost get this yeah. idea that, you know, maybe hobbits in the Shire have long forgotten the real story that's told in the Silmarillion. They don't remember exactly why Tilion isn't always on time, but, you know, they've made up no. other stories to explain the, you know, these observable phenomena of the moon. And so, as Shippy says, there are hints of mythological significance, even in a very silly story like this one. Tilion doesn't arrive early, nor is he late. <laughs> Bilbo Baggins, he arrives precisely when he means to. Anyway. <laughs> One one of my favorite memes that was ever posted on some Facebook group was yeah. was a picture of the moon shining in, in the daylight sky and somebody posting it with the caption like, Tilion, go home, you're drunk. <laughs> I don't know who came up with that, but props that to whoever brilliant. did. I love that. Brilliant stuff. I love that. Well, didn't we speculate that Tilion was uh, like Orame's old frat bro? Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I think we did. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe him stopping for a drink isn't as ridiculous as it sounds. Right, yeah, maybe. Oh, man. But, you know, it it is interesting to note that even though they don't know, that is the hobbits and men, don't know these ancient origin stories of the moon and sun, they do still refer to the sun as she and to the moon as he. Remember Arian, the Maya of the sun from the Silmarillion, too bright were the eyes of Arian for even the Eldar to look on. Yeah, I mean, that, that is definitely very interesting. I mean, I think it's not entirely surprising if Westron has grammatical gender. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. I, and I don't know enough about Westron. I don't know if there really is enough I don't. written about Westron yeah, I don't to know, know for sure. But I mean, one thing you find in, in real world languages, there are, to borrow Shippy's phrase, there are hints of mythological significance in the genders of nouns for the sun and moon in, in languages in the real world. I mean, English right. doesn't have grammatical gender anymore. But in German, I believe, the, the noun for the sun is feminine. Now, you mm-hmm. took German, yeah. right? It's Desona. like Dissona. Uh, and then the noun for the moon is masculine, which is der Mond. Yeah, der Mond. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and that seems to be a relic of Germanic mythology in which the sun was actually associated with a goddess. So oh, the sun okay. was feminine and the moon was masculine because it was it had a male god. There you and, go. And that's the template that Tolkien seems to have followed in the Silmarillion. By contrast, if you're familiar with you know Romance languages like Spanish or French, right. those typically have a feminine noun for the moon, like la luna. And a masculine noun for the sun, mm, like El Sol. Mm-hmm. And that that comes straight from yeah. Greco-Roman mythology, if you think of like Apollo yeah, and Artemis. Classical, yeah. classical mythology, mm-hmm. right. Man, that's great stuff. Now, although we don't have time to sidebar on that now, because we have yet another sidebar waiting, the man of the moon is also a prominent character in Tolkien's novella, Rover Random. That's right. 
And as you said, we do have another sidebar waiting, but I want to drop one little bit of word <laughs> nerdery here before we jump yes. into that. Uh, we just heard Tolkien say this word, ostler. And I just wanted to point yes. out for folks that an ostler is someone who looks after the horses of people staying at an inn. So oh, okay. that would actually be the job of Bob here at the Prancing Pony, which is why moments from now, after Frodo finishes the song, somebody is going to suggest Bob ought to learn his cat the fiddle. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, though, we now have coming up Double Sidebar. <laughs> <laughs> we should have never given you those effects. No, don't give board. me toys like that. <laughs> you just you just abuse them. That's what you do, sir. You know, you it's actually them. been so long since I've done that. It really has, yeah. I, the effects that I use these days, and it's very, very rare. I think I added them for the, for the, for the white voice. White's voice. Yeah. yeah, that was uh, that was actually just done in post. The songs of the Barry White. Uh, yeah, the songs <laughs> of the Barry White. That's so great. I love that. Oh, man. I did hear from some people on Facebook, though. Apparently, when that first came on, it absolutely made some people jump. <laughs> <laughs> really? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were listening to the show, and then all of a sudden, I said something like, you know, I don't remember what the what the White's first line was, but you know, you know, this, yeah. this just, this made it made me out. jump, dude. And when I heard it, I was like, because <laughs> you told me you were doing it, but I didn't get a chance to hear it yeah. until until no, I listened to the pretty episode. cool stuff. That's awesome. Well, anyway, yeah. So now on with the double, double sidebar, sidebar. triple sidebar. Our second sidebar yeah. is uh, on songs for the philologists. Yeah. Earlier, we mentioned that Tolkien's original drafts intended for this to be the troll song that Sam's going to sing a few chapters from now. There's yeah. a little bit of a story there from Return of the Shadow, History of Middle-Earth, Volume 6, that is worth going into, even if it's just to talk about, well, what's probably, what, the rarest Tolkien-related book out there, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. In The Return of the Shadow, Christopher Tolkien tells us that the original version of the troll song, which was called The Root of the Boot, has its origins in Tolkien's time at the University <laughs> of that. Leeds. That original version, with Tolkien's later corrections, is actually printed in The Return of the Shadow, and definitely worth a read. And we're not going to go into that right now. We might actually come back to it in a few chapters when Sam sings mm -hmm. the, the, the later version of the Troll Song. Yeah. Yeah, I think we will. But what we really wanted to talk about from that, though, is this little book, Songs for the Philologists. Mm -hmm. Now, don't go looking for it on Amazon or no. any bookstore you might find. No. Uh, the story behind this is really interesting. When Tolkien was at Leeds, he and his good friend and fellow philologist E.V. Gordon created the Viking Club. Now, they didn't go around wearing horned helmets that we know of. They certainly didn't go around cheering on American football teams from Minnesota, uh, <laughs> nor did they binge watch the recent television show. Uh, no, this society was dedicated to two very, very good things, apparently. Drinking beer and reading Icelandic sagas. Sign so, me up. <laughs> <laughs> Members would also invent original songs in Old English, Gothic, Old Icelandic, and Old Norse, which just totally Don't disqualifies me. me. <laughs> yeah, we're done. Now, interestingly, Tolkien even mentions the Viking Club, sans the beer, in Letter 7, which was his application mm. to the Professorship of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford, which is probably I why wonder he why he left the out beer. the beer when he was applying for a job. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, so back to Return of the Shadow, uh, Christopher Tolkien tells us that uh, that Gordon, Evie Gordon, created typescripts of some of these original songs for his students. Yeah. In Tolkien's own words, Gordon's sources were manuscripts of my own verses and his, with many editions of modern and traditional Icelandic songs taken mostly from Icelandic student songbooks. Mm -hmm. Well, in 1935 or 1936, a former student at Leeds, a Dr. A.H. Smith of London University, gave one of these typescripts, uncorrected, 
to a group of honor students there for them to set up on the Elizabethan printing press. That was a, a like a reconstructed wooden hand press. And the mm-hmm. result was a booklet bearing the title Songs for the Philologists by J.R.R. Tolkien, E.V. Gordon, and others. But that's not the end of the story, unfortunately. In 1940, as Christopher Tolkien tells us, Tolkien received a letter from the school explaining that when the books were ready, Dr. Smith realized that he had never asked your permission and that the books must not be distributed till that had been done. Well, Dr. Smith apparently never got around to asking for that permission, so the letter continues. The sad result is that most of the copies printed, being left undistributed in our rooms, have perished like the press itself in the fire which destroyed that part of the college building. Mm. That fire was the result of bombing during World War II and only a very few copies, about 14 most believe, survived. Eight of those are in libraries, so six are in private collections. Wow. Wow. It's, man, it's it's heartbreaking. And so what, there were 30 total songs in the compilation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tolkien wrote nearly half of them. Um, Yeah, I think like 13 of them, yeah. Yeah. Some of these poems, uh, three of them in Old English and one in Gothic, are actually included in the appendices of Tom Shippey's The Road to Middle-Earth. With translations, I would point out. Um, Well, yeah. Otherwise, they're not very useful for most of us. Right. So, you know, since you're unlikely to be able to afford the $30,000 plus price tag that privately held copies are sold for, uh, this might be your only way to read some of Tolkien's songs from the collection. Yeah. So I would make sure you pick up a copy of The Road to Middle-Earth and just take a look at those. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I will not be adding that to my collection. I just want to make that clear. Well, (laughs) I just really... Yeah, no, I don't see how that's possible to, to do, no, honestly. No, And, and um, I imagine that the prices would be much higher now. I think that might have been the last actually, you know, sold price, which was years and years ago. Uh, so I imagine it's significantly that's higher. That's what I was thinking. If you can find become a available. seller. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and since there's only a half dozen that aren't in libraries, good luck with that. Yep. I'm assuming one of them would be the Bodleian, but. I wonder if the Bodleian or, or Marquette might have. Marquette might, might be one. Them, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Maybe one day we'll find out. Maybe so. We'll have to look around. Well, now that we've uh, talked a little bit about that song and the the wonderful stories behind it and the wonderful stories about the song that might have taken its place, uh, I'm going to go ahead and have you pick back up right after the end of that song. Okay. They made Frodo have another drink. I like that. They made him. (laughs) They made him. Oh, sure. Twist my arm. Right, right. right. (laughs) Oh, no, not another drink. Oh, please don't throw me in that briar patch. (laughs) (laughs) They made Frodo have another drink and then begin his song again, while many of them joined in. For the tune was well known, and they were quick at picking up words. It was now Frodo's turn to feel pleased with himself. He capered about on the table, and when he came a second time to The Cow Jumped Over the Moon, he leaped in the air, much too vigorously, for he came down, bang, into a tray full of mugs, and slipped and rolled off the table with a crash, clatter, and bump. The audience all opened their mouths wide for laughter and stopped short in gaping silence, for the singer disappeared. He simply vanished, as if he had gone slapped through the floor without leaving a hole. Where'd he go? <laughs> the local hobbits stared in amazement and then sprang to their feet and shouted for Barlamin. All the company drew away from Pippin and Sam, who found themselves left alone in a corner and eyed darkly and doubtfully from a distance. It was plain that many people regarded them now as the companions of a traveling magician of unknown powers and purpose. But there was one swarthy Brelander who stood looking at them with a knowing and half-mocking expression 
that made them feel very uncomfortable. Presently, he slipped out of the door, followed by the squint-eyed southerner. The two had been whispering together a good deal during the evening. And spoiler alert, that swarthy Brelander is named Bill. Bill we'll get Fernie. To that later. Good old Bill Fernie. Yep. And the squint-eyed southern, the, Dun- the Dunlending, we talked about him. Yeah, the in, Dunlander. Uh, was it yeah. the last episode we talked about him? The last Possibly. episode, I believe, uh, where, yeah, it turns out he was the one who just a, a couple of days ago was in the presence of the Witch King. Right, so, yeah. Yeah. Good guys, class acts. What a What a hilarious moment this was, though, yeah. other than that, right up until yeah. the disappearance. Here's, just so we're clear, here's where Frodo makes his yeah. stupid mistake, I think. Um, here's your sign. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, precisely. Yeah. I mean, you know, and you can see it happening. It was Frodo's turn to feel pleased with himself. Yep, there it yep. is. There's, there it is, folks. That's, it. that's, yep. that's and to be the fair, you're know, saying, oops. Oops. Yeah, exactly. Yep. He's making the same mistake Pippin was making a moment ago. Yep. Uh, so the, the taking attention away from Pippin has now backfired because now he's doing the same mm-hmm. silly things. To be fair, yes, he is. they made, and I'm making air quotes as I say that, um, they made him have another drink first, <laughs> and then they made him sing it again. Yeah, because he has no free will. Right, right, of course. <laughs> so he, But he certainly had impaired judgment from all the drinking, so there's that. I want to be a real boy. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's just a, he's yeah. just a puppet. Right? Yeah, right, exactly. No, um, no he's, he's got impaired judgment, okay? We, you know, who hasn't? He impaired judgment. Who hasn't sung, He's wearing a lampshade as a hat. Who hasn't yeah, that's sung right. one too many songs on the table of the bar after one too many drinks? My, my hand is raised over here, sir. I said after one I've too many drinks. One I know that's many... not you. But... Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's true. Kind of by definition. Right. Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> this is a great moment, though. I love it. And I love how they react. I mean, they just... <gasps> Yeah, right. <laughs> and they're, Parliament, Parliament, get out of yeah. here. Oh, get away from these guys. Yeah. Sorcera, do you have strange <laughs> powers too? A witch, a witch. <laughs> a witch. <laughs> he disappeared into the floor. He came back. <laughs> See? Oh, goodness. What else floats <laughs> in water? Anyway, we're not going to get anywhere if we keep no, quoting not Python. Or, or for a moment, I was trying to quote uh, Frozen there. That was the um, – Oh, the sort – Oh, I right. can't remember his name. The Duke of The Duke Wesselton. of Weaseltown. Weaseltown or Weaseltown? Weaseltown. Yeah. Weaseltown. Yeah. Who, by the way, is voiced by Alan Tudyk, mm-hmm. the Wash uh, actor Firefly who played fame. Wash. That's right. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite television shows ever. He's been a voice in like every Disney movie for the last 15 years or something. I know. Yeah, he's been a mainstay, hasn't he? Yeah. And I still can't hear him in that in that role. Like I I can't picture him doing it. He did such a great job of playing this yeah, smarmy old he guy did. with the bad Maybe today. not fifteen. It might be more like ten years, but he's been in every Disney movie yeah, for the last he's few years. Been, yeah. He has been in just about every one. A little bit of a sidebar here, not a full-blown sidebar. Otherwise, I'd have to bust out the triple sidebar sound effect. And I don't know if I even have that one. <laughs> I don't think the world can uh, handle the, it, Alan. <laughs> no, no, I don't think it can. You're not ready, folks, for that. <laughs> okay. We're coming back to old Harry at the gate here. In in older editions, and by older, I don't mean old. I mean just before 2004, so 15 years ago. We see that Harry the gatekeeper also went out just behind mm-hmm. them. That was in the text. Now, as Hammond and Skull described, there were references to Harry Goatleaf being in the inn in the early draft, but Tolkien clearly deleted them. And yet this one still made it into the published version. So they mentioned a discussion with Christopher Tolkien where he argued that this was an anomalous reference and should be deleted just as the other references had already been deleted by his father, one where Harry calls for his backup at the gate, and another when Frodo sees him in the common room. Now, we happen to side with Christopher Tolkien on this. 
by voting to remove Harry from the ranks of the questionable. Yeah, and it's a good thing, too. I mean, mm-hmm. in one draft, Tolkien has Trotter tell Frodo that Harry Goatleaf is a mean old curmudgeon. And that just wouldn't do oh. it all for our Questions After Nightfall episodes, would it? No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. There's also another tidbit, though, that's <laughs> worth mentioning from an old draft. Shadowfax's name comes up for some reason. I don't remember the context at this moment, but at one point in the process, Shadowfax's name was Narathal, meaning Firefoot. Oh, yeah. Now, Tolkien wrote in pencil two other possible names, Fairfax and Snowfax, uh, which <laughs> neither of those are great, but no. I, I'm just glad that it's not Narathal because, you know, that really sounds like a pharmaceutical product. I mean, talk to your doctor about Narathal. Burn away your athlete's foot with Narathal. <laughs> I mean, oh, no. <laughs> well, it means firefoot. No. Yep, it, it works. It works too well, actually. Uh, um, well, you know what's interesting about that? Talk to your doctor if you've been to places where fungal infections are common. Narathal <laughs> uh, <laughs> can cause side effects such as itchy feet. Yep, death. <laughs> Yep. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, you know what's fascinating about that is uh, Firefoot actually didn't completely go away, did it? Uh, You're right. The, no, it didn't. In the finished version of The Lord of the Rings, Firefoot in Westron, not in Elvish, is the name of Aomer's yeah. horse. Yeah. And Aomer would never call him Darathal. Right. Yeah, he just calls yeah. him Firefoot. Right. I love it. Great stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually going to go ahead and pick up, before we get into discussing the passage, I'm going to go ahead and pick up the next little bit, and then we'll kind of talk about those as a whole. All right, let's do that. Frodo felt a fool. Not knowing what else to do, he crawled away under the tables to the dark corner by Strider, who sat unmoved, giving no sign of his thoughts. Frodo leaned back against the wall and took off the ring. How it came to be on his finger, he could not tell. He could only suppose that he'd been handling it in his pocket while he sang, and that somehow... It had slipped on when he stuck out his hand with a jerk to save his fall. For a moment, he wondered if the ring itself had not played him a trick. Perhaps it had tried to reveal itself in response to some wish or command that was felt in the room. He did not like the looks of the men that had gone out. Well, said Strider when he reappeared, why did you do that? Worse than anything your friends could have said. You've put your foot in it. Or should I say your finger? I don't know what you mean, said Frodo, annoyed and alarmed. Oh, yes, you do, answered Strider. But we'd better wait until the uproar has died down. Then, if you please, Mr. Baggins, I should like a quiet word with you. What about? asked Frodo, ignoring the sudden use of his proper name. A matter of some importance. To us both, answered Strider, looking Frodo in the eye. You may hear something to your advantage. So let's discuss that wonderful passage Man. because there's quite a bit here, yeah. especially under the theme of the ring at work. Yeah. I mean, and Frodo suspects it. And, you know, he knows that the the ring had played some sort of trick or he starts, he suspects it, you know, yeah. that, it, that it wanted to reveal itself. We see mm-hmm. the hints of it happening even before the When song. he's just sort of fingering it in his pocket. Yeah. He's got it. Cla- mm-hmm. He clasps it in his hand. As if to keep a hold on it and prevent it from escaping or doing any yeah. mischief. And that's really interesting because he knows that it could be up to something here. And and we also see that yeah, putting yeah. his hands in his pockets and fidgeting with stuff in his pockets is kind of a 
kind of like a little nervous tick or a fidget yeah, that he has, you know, when, yeah. he, when he's up there, when he's giving mm-hmm. a speech. So he's kind of, yeah. he, he knows he does this and he knows that the ring is in there and it could backfire on him, but he, yeah. he, he's got presence of mind enough to, to try and keep a grip on the ring to prevent it right. from doing any mischief. Puts it in the palm yeah, of his hand yeah. and makes a fist around he it. You know, it's not going to get on my it's finger that He's way. completely unaware of the danger that he's in with his hand in his pocket. No. But man, the ring no. finds a way, doesn't it? It sure does. And and he's tempted too. I mean, going back again to, to pre-song, the desire came over him to slip it on and vanish. Mm-hmm. So it's already trying mm-hmm. to get the job yeah. done. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's interesting now that we're after the song, it's interesting to find that we think the ring itself might have been playing a trick mm-hmm. on him. Again, we're coming back to the will of the ring yeah. and the ring at work. Yeah. A wish or command that was felt in the room. Yeah. What do you think of that? What's in the room itself? I mean, it, I mean, we don't have the ring wraiths no. there. They're they're not fully invisible. No, but it, I mean, they are if they're not wearing their their black. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think there's one well, in here. You know, is what I'm saying. maybe this maybe this this Dunlanding, you know, the squint-eyed Southerner who who was there talking yeah. to Bill Fernie. Yeah. You know, we, we just talked about how days ago he was talking to the to the ring wraiths. He knows something yeah. of their errand. He probably is starting to suspect something. There's these hobbits that have come out of the Shire and, um, you know, he, he doesn't know anything, but maybe he's, I wonder, maybe he is thinking it would be great if I could, if the ring could come out now and I could report this to my master. Wow. To think that the ring might be able to pick up on that and, and, and respond to that. That's, I mean, and that's Frodo's speculation. I don't know if it's really what's happening. Well, you're right. You're right. But it is a scary thought if that's what's going on. Yeah. Because that the ring is. is responding I mean, to the ill will and the, and the ill intent of people in the room, which I guess we know it yeah, does the, do. The, the evil, yeah. the evil yeah, will. Yeah. You're right. It does. Uh, we know it responds to things mm-hmm. like that. Alternatively, Frodo could be thinking that it came from inside the room, but really the Witch King is just not that far away. Mm-hmm. And it's responding to him even from, from a longer distance. That's mm-hmm. another possibility. It could be. Yeah. It's, it's a very creepy moment, a very, a very close shave. It is. And Strider, yeah, man. Right, it is. Strider just scolds him over it. I mean, I love you it. have put your <laughs> By the way, I barely it. met you, but now I'm going to tell you what an idiot yeah, you are. Yeah. And I love, you know, <laughs> yeah. again, hints that Strider, there's more to him than meets the eye. You know, he knows things. Yeah. You put your foot in it, or should I say your finger. He's got such a, he's got yeah, such style, you know. But he clearly knows. And he doesn't even, yeah, then it, then he drops the hints altogether and he says, Mr. Baggins. Yeah, yeah, you're you know, right. It, it, it's no longer Mr. Underhill. Right, yeah. 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 He, he's At this point, he's letting his cards show. He's playing them and making sure that Frodo's aware that he knows yeah. something. I, uh, something very important. I always feel like this is the moment when the book really takes off. And, and just, you know, and kind of hits the, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not saying yeah, anything so. negative about the previous chapters. We've talked about all the great stuff there is in the previous chapters, but for some reason, this moment when Strider calls Frodo Mr. Baggins for the first time, that to me feels like, mm-hmm. okay, we're buckled up now. This is like point of no yeah. return for this story now. It's, it's, it's going to start, you know, speeding yeah. along. It's, uh, it's I think cool. I, I see what you yeah. mean. I mean, the rest is all kind of prelude yeah. to this moment yeah. in a way. And there's great uh, stuff. It, that all gets us here. Yeah. And we've talked about, oh, yeah. you know. Lots of richness. Exactly. That, of and all the before picture and things like that. But this seems like, this feels like the moment when Frodo's peril really kind of takes off. And it kind of, mm-hmm. he stays in peril pretty much for the rest of the book. Yeah, you're right. He does. 
Interestingly, though, we won't read the one little line about Frodo agreeing. Frodo agrees to see him to, to see him later. Yeah. Like, okay, I'll, I'll talk to you later. Like, you've, you've convinced me that you know something. Yeah. Now, we won't see that until next episode. For now, though, I'm going to have you, Sean, read the, uh, this little bit here about the aftermath. Okay. Meanwhile, an argument was going on by the fireplace. Mr. Butterbur had come trotting in, and he was now trying to listen to several conflicting accounts of the event at the same time. I saw him, Mr. Butterbur, said a hobbit, or leastways I didn't see him, if you take my meaning. He just vanished into thin air, in a manner of speaking. You don't say, Mr. Mugwort, said the landlord, looking puzzled. Yes, I do, replied Mugwort, and I mean what I say, what's more. There's some mistake somewhere, said Butterbur, shaking his head. There was too much of that Mr. Underhill to go vanishing into thin air, or into thick air, as is more likely in this room. Well, where is he now? cried several voices. How should I know? He's welcome to go where he will so long as he pays in the morning. There's Mr. Took now. He's not vanished. Well, I saw what I saw, and I saw what I didn't, said Mugward obstinately. And I say there's some mistake, repeated Butterbur, picking up the tray and gathering up the broken crockery. Of course there's a mistake, said Frodo. I haven't vanished. Here I am. I've just been having a few words with Strider in the corner. Sure. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. Not like having a nice few words try. with Strider in the corner isn't suspicious enough. But I know. know, exactly. Oh, okay. So you didn't disappear to the floor. You've just been You're having just... words with the guy we all think is a creep. <laughs> right. Like, exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's going to help your standing with these people. Yep. Not the best cover story. Oh, goodness. I, I do like Bartleman's very practical answer. He can go where he wants as long as he yeah. pays in the morning. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe you should have collected up front, you know, get a credit card number, put a hold on it. I don't know. Yeah. You can't do stuff like this anymore. Hotels <laughs> have gotten too wise to it, you know. Yeah, seriously. You can't, you know, you can't just disappear nope. in the morning. So Frodo reveals himself, but nobody's satisfied, right? In fact, most of them, we're not going to read that paragraph, most of them end up right. leaving. Uh, which, you know, they, all, they right. all stare at Time to go home. So they give him the side eye. getting shady in here tonight now creepy weird yeah. hobbit yeah no one's left except for strider he's just sitting there in the shadows mm -hmm. by the wall nobody notices he's even there uh, but i love butterbur's approach to this he, he's talking to to frodo about it he says mm -hmm. well he says what well, we'll get to in a moment i'm going to pick up right before that mr butterbur did not seem much put out he reckoned very probably that his house would be full again on many future nights until the present mystery had been thoroughly discussed now, what have you been doing, Mr. Underhill? He asked, frightening my customers and breaking up my crocs with your acrobatics. I'm very sorry to have caused any trouble, said Frodo. It was quite unintentional, I assure you, a most unfortunate accident. All right, Mr. Underhill, but if you're going to do any more tumbling or conjuring or whatever it was, you'd best warn folk beforehand and warn me. We're a bit suspicious around here of anything out of the way, uncanny if you understand me, and we don't take to it all of a sudden. I shan't be doing anything of the sort again, Mr. Butterbur, I promise you. And now I think I'll be getting to bed. We shall be making an early start. Will you see that our ponies are ready by eight o'clock? Very good. But before you go, I should like a word with you in private, Mr. Underhill. Something has just come back to my mind that I ought to tell you. I hope that you'll not take it amiss. When I've seen to a thing or two, I'll come along to your room, if you're willing. Certainly, said Frodo, but his heart sank. He wondered how many private talks he would have before he got to bed, and what they would reveal. Were these people all in league against him? He began to suspect even old Butterbur's fat face 
of concealing dark designs. Mm. <laughs> Poor Frodo. He doesn't know who to, you know, who to trust right now. He's just, yeah, he he's knows really he screwed up and he just feels at sea. Yeah. He's he at is, sea. Yeah. You know, he's, he's not anchored. Good he's way of floating. It. And... Yeah. He's at sea. Yeah. And he's oh. just, he's very nervous. It's interesting oh, yeah. that he is willing to talk to Strider privately, even though for all he knows, yeah. Strider may know all that stuff because he's a black rider. I mean, Frodo doesn't really know anything about what the black riders really Frodo are. Frodo doesn't know. No. And he knows that his name is Baggins, yeah, which is bad. Right. But I guess, you know, we'll see in the next chapter. Frodo just kind of has a, a feeling about Strider that. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. there's some intuition. Yeah, sure. Some, some intuition that at least he's not, well, like you said, at least he's not a black rider. Yeah. Uh, that he'd seem fairer and right. feel yeah. fouler. Eventually. Yeah. That's a great line. Isn't it? And I think that's in the next episode. I love that Butterbur isn't troubled. You know, he's yeah. Oh, he thinks oh, absolutely. Good for business yeah, and he's right. And they're people are going to be talking about this for for months. People are going to be yeah. hanging out, drinking in the pub. And, yeah, and, and and you know, he's he's broken up commotions like this before. This isn't that big of a deal. Oh, I'm sure he has. You know, he's got maybe a broken table yeah. or something like that. Some crockery that he's going to need to replace. To, yeah, you know, mend or yeah. buy new stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Frodo is very practical. Hey, have the ponies ready by eight. We're going to be heading out. Uh, but all of this has triggered, finally, Butterbur's memory. Yep. Finally, he remembers something, and we'll see what that is in the next chapter. But yeah, I, I wonder. Well, I think he finally realizes yeah, this is he's he's remembered it. We'll get yeah, to. Yeah, I it wonder is later. if he if he was starting to remember earlier. He almost I almost wonder if he's covering for Frodo a little bit in the first part of that passage that you just read. You know, he's he's kind of he's kind of downplaying hmm. it. Yeah, people are you know. You're I'm right. You're right. You make a good point. In other words, has actually, the incident really triggered going back his memory the, that, oh, yeah. this was the guy? Actually, going back to the passage that I read, you know, where some of the hobbits, like Mugwort, are like, hey, man, this is really weird. And and Butterbur's just saying, oh, there's some mistake. Right. It's not a big deal. There's, there's, there's Mr. Some Took over You're there. You're right. I, I think he might have already remembered something. He probably doesn't remember the details yet. I think he remembers there was a letter from Gandalf. And he's probably he's thinking like, oh, yeah. this is probably that guy that Gandalf was telling me about. So if he's right. friends with Gandalf. And I yeah, need to try exactly. to cover for him That's a That's exactly bit. Right. right. I think you're absolutely right. I think he's aware. He doesn't, of course, mm-hmm. know the details of the letter. Uh, but he does know what Gandalf told him, which was there's a Mr. Underhill that's going to be coming and mm-hmm. you need to take good yeah. care of him. But yeah. I think it says something about. I think you make an uh, excellent uh, point. Thank you. But I think it says something about Frodo and how. <laughs> Don't act surprised. <laughs> it's just so rare that, you know, we give each other compliments on this show. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think oh, it goodness. says something about Frodo and how adrift he feels, as you were talking about, that. Yeah. Butterbur yeah. is remembering who he is and Butterbur's trying to cover for him. Strider knows who he is and Strider's trying to protect him and, 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 you know, and cover for him. But Frodo doesn't know what's going on and he just feels, he feels You're threatened right. by all of this. And he's like, oh man, is even Butterbur out to get me? You know, oh, it's got to be a, just a miserable place to be. You're and, right. You know, it Tolkien is. is kind of a master of understatement in terms of giving us Frodo's, you know, emotional response to this. Yeah. But, I mean, it does say his heart sank. Yeah, you know? it's a good point. He's, his discomfort yeah. level, his discomfort yeah. level is very high. And I think we'll see in the next chapter that in a way that helps lead him to to want to believe Strider. Mm, yeah. To, to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, good point. Uh, that he's he's ready to kind of put himself in a better position. And he's yeah. he's hopeful that indeed Strider is who yeah, he says he good is. Point. We'll find out if he is in the next <laughs> yes, episode. Yes, we will. So Butterbur's fat face may not be concealing any dark designs, but we will learn just how forgetful he was when we begin Chapter 10 of Book 1 of The Lord of the Rings next week with Strider.
Now, before we reach into Barlaman's bag, we want to remind you about the fellowship of the podcast. If you've been listening recently, you've heard us talk about how close we were to our next goal of setting up a Discord server. Yeah. Well, it turns out our listeners have been tripping all over themselves to experience our private humiliation, which is just a fancy way of saying our Discord server is up and running. That's right. But to keep our embarrassment amongst friends, that Discord server is limited to patrons at the gift of Gondor level or higher. So if you want to listen in live during an episode recording, check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod. You'll also get all sorts of other goodies like access to exclusive content and PPP swag. And check out our next goal. We're awfully close to it. In fact, we might have hit it by the time this episode releases of setting up a monthly live hangout with us on Discord. Just a chance to chat with a couple of your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward yeah, to that when it happens. It's going to be yeah. fun. Well, if you're looking for a new Tolkien book in the meantime, check out the official library pages at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com, where we've put together a set of links for our listeners to all the books we've ever mentioned on the show, Tolkien or otherwise. And if you wouldn't mind posting a review on iTunes, we'd be grateful. That increases our visibility. That means more new listeners, more questions for Barlaman, more discussion on social media, and a more vibrant Tolkien community. Now, speaking of social media, it's also helpful if you share us there. Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, wherever there happen to be Tolkien fans. Now, with that, it's time to see what old Barlaman has in the mailbag for us. All right. Well, it's been three episodes since we said goodbye to Tom Bombadil, and even yeah. more than that since we last saw Goldberry. But thanks to our recording schedule, where we're recording episodes <laughs> a little bit ahead of time, we're yeah. continuing to get questions in the mailbag about them. So we've got a few of those today. First up, Sam D. wrote to us and asked, Is there any word nerdery on Goldberry's name? I speculate, hmm. and only speculate, as my limited research has turned up little, that the gold describes her hair. The berry part of her name has me wondering, though. So I'll paraphrase the next bit of this, but Sam basically says that between the online etymology dictionary and Wiktionary and, and some, some of the online sources like that, uh -huh. he says he's found very little, except for the fact that berry comes from Old English beria, which is a, a huh. native Germanic word that's of uncertain origin, but might okay. ultimately derive from a, a proto-indo-european root meaning to chew and I'm, I'm sorry i'm getting really nerdy there wow um, you really are yes <laughs> I, I go deep on these etymologies when i see indo-european roots i'm just like ooh, ooh yes <laughs> but <laughs> you get chills when you see that i huh? do i really do but anyway it gets interesting at this point because uh, going back to, to Sam's own words here, he says, despite the Wiktionary's dubious entries, it lists this as one definition of berry, one of the ova or eggs from a fish. Oh. I like this one in particular, he says, due to the abundant water imagery we get with Goldberry. Even the shoes she wears at one point during the Hobbit's stay were like fish's mail. Hmm. Sam also says that amongst its other definitions, it's been suggested that the word berry may also be derived from Old English bear meaning mountain, hill, or barrow. And it's more of a point of trivia than anything, he says, but he says, I thought it was interesting. Hmm. Finally, Sam says, what do you guys think about this? I'm surprised you haven't already word nerded over it, although this may be because you have already mentioned it and I missed it, or you're planning it for something else. Well, you haven't missed it, Sam, but I'm surprised we haven't talked about it before now. I mean, seriously, the nymph that laid the golden egg. I mean, how can we how can we not talk about that? <laughs> right. I know. It's just, it just seems like the kind of thing we we would love. Tom yeah. and the beanstalk. I mean, it's just it's a perfect fit. Sean, yeah, have, you, yeah. have you got anything on this? <laughs> not much uh, until now, and that's why I haven't brought it up. Um, uh -huh. The truth is, aside from you know the very obvious surface meaning of gold berry, there just right. isn't really much definitive to be found about what her name actually means. Even one of my 
usual go-to resources for this, Tolkien's own nomenclature of the Lord of the Rings, it's not really much help because hmm. under the name Goldberry, he just says, translate by sense. <laughs> so, wow, that's helpful. Thank you. That was a guide for translators, you know, working right. his work. And he basically is just saying, you know, take it at its literal English meaning. That's fair enough. But why is that an appropriate name for a river daughter? I mean, okay, gold is descriptive of her hair. That makes sense. But Barry sure, really yeah. is mysterious, isn't it? I mean, is there anything yeah. to this fish egg thing that, that Sam's come up with? You know, I will admit I had not heard that before. Uh, before he wrote to us, but he is absolutely correct. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, that is one sense of the word berry. The OED also says that uh, specifically in this aquatic sense, a hen lobster carrying her eggs is said to be in berry or buried. Um, so hmm. that's kind of cool. Although Interesting. I, I have to admit it, it is. I mean, despite the obvious aquatic implications of that sense, I'm not really convinced that that's what Tolkien was thinking of only because, according to the OED, it seems to be a pretty rare usage. There's, I think, three definitions of Barry given in the OED, and this is the third. It's, it's the last one, and there are only two quotations given for it uh, occurring between 1768 and 1876. Wow. Now, Over 100 years, and there's two quotes. Right, exactly. Now, anybody who's looked at OED entries before knows that they, they sometimes have a dozen quotations yeah. over a thousand years. And we've got two in the space of, you know, just under 100 years. It just doesn't seem like that well attested of a word. So I'm not really sure if that's what Tolkien was thinking of. Yeah. Now, there is one other interesting thing that I found while I was researching this, though. Are, are you sure? Now, this. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, I'm not sure it's interesting. Are you sure it's interesting? It, that's what I meant. I found yeah. it. I found okay, it for sure. I'm not, I don't know how interesting it is. Uh, <laughs> this is pure speculation, and maybe I should stop okay. there. But Well, no, no. That actually makes it interesting. Go ahead. I'm not going to because this is a lot of fun. <laughs> a 19th century... I don't know if it's fun either. I was going to say fun might be a stretch, <laughs> but okay. I'll let you. <laughs> a, a 19... Uh, hey, I'm the guy who goes like, yes, when I say Proto-Indo-European. Proto-Indo-European. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So... Again, total speculation, but a 19th century philologist named John Bannister did some work on the Cornish language. Now, that's a Celtic mm. language that's native to Cornwall in southwest England. Uh -huh. And he published a glossary of Cornish names between 1869 and 1871. I think he published it in like seven serial parts or something. Oh, okay. Now, I've got no evidence that Tolkien actually read Bannister's work, so that's why this is total speculation. But he was a philologist working in England, just you know, half a century before Tolkien. True. Um, so it does seem possible. I don't know for sure that Tolkien actually studied Cornish, but he did spend time in Cornwall and he did study Welsh and he did study Breton, which are two languages, I think the two languages that are most closely related to Cornish. Hmm. So maybe there's, I'm, I'm willing to say there's maybe a 50-50 chance he might have known this glossary of Cornish names by Bannister. Sure. And the reason I bring that up is, is this. Apparently, the name Goldberry is attested as an actual person's name in Cornwall because oh. Bannister included it. And the etymology that he gave for it was Cornish Gwail and Berwick. Now, I, I could be mispronouncing both of those. I know nothing about Cornish. Uh, but apparently, it's Cornish for rich field. Oh, wow. Now, oh, wow. Okay. Now, Bannister's etymologies are highly conjectural. Uh, that doesn't really matter for purposes of this. I mean, if Tolkien knew the work, he might have been influenced by sure. this, you know, etymology, even if it wasn't an accurate one. Um, and and the reason that this is kind of sticking with me is I'm remembering something Tolkien said in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil 
that the name Tom Bombadil was Bucklandish in form. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, remember, Bucklander That's, names that are means supposed it's to Celtic. be vaguely Celtic, right? right That's right. in Appendix F. So maybe if Tom Bombadil's name was supposed to sound Celtic, maybe Goldberry's name is supposed to sound Celtic too. I don't know. I'm really deep in speculation oh, territory yeah. here, but oh, yeah. it's a possibility. Very seriously deep. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean we can't enjoy that speculation, but yeah, you, you probably ought to get your hip waders on or maybe even a hazmat suit on because you're <laughs> in totally, really, really, yeah. really deep. I've there might be the three, people, suit and... three people still listening to this part of the show. Everybody else is going, when I, is this part going to end? I hope there's three <laughs> left. Um, I've got the hazmat suit on. I've got like the beekeeper suit over it. There you, you know. go. There you go. I've got like a fencing mask. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally protecting <laughs> myself from this. Good. Now, there's one thing that makes all of this kind of interesting mm-hmm. to me. <laughs> there's, <laughs> to me. There's one thing. There's that the all qualifier these poss- that matters. There's right. the qualifier, yeah. Interesting to Sean is a, is a pretty... <laughs> Not saying much, <laughs> but there's that's not a category on twenty five thousand dollar pyramid anytime soon. No, no. Things that are interesting no. to Sean. No, no, gosh, no, no. Please, that's not this one. No, pass, okay. pass on all this. Pass. Um, one thing all these etymologies have in common, whether her name literally means goldberry, or whether it's meant to be a pun on goldfish egg, or whether it's a Cornish word meaning rich field. All of these possible etymologies, when I read them, they imply yeah, fertility, yeah. abundance. Yeah. And although that doesn't fit really well with the water imagery that we think of with her, it does fit well with the idea of her as a representation of those seasonal changes of the land that we uh, talked about. Yeah. And yeah. with her and Tom as nature spirits. So I don't know. It's a possibility. It's really all I can come up with is, is to, yeah. to really dig deep into speculation. As far as I'm concerned, maybe Tolkien had any one of these three meanings in his hmm. head when he okay. named her Goldberry. Maybe he had all of them. Maybe he had none of them, folks. Maybe. I can't prove anything. So take all this with a grain of salt. There you go. I, I'm going to take that with a, a very large piece of, <laughs> like like a salt lick, actually. I'm probably going to use yeah. with that. But yeah. 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 Now I'm hungry. Well, there you go, Sam. I hope you enjoyed that speculation to your question because I don't think we have an answer. <laughs> Best I can do, Sam. Exactly. Well, next up, Ethan B. wrote to us after hearing our first episode on In the House of Tom Bombadil and that wonderful scene of the water in the Hobbit's drinking bowls setting free their voices so that they began singing merrily as if it was easier and more natural than talking. Now, Ethan said, I noticed something that I hadn't before as you were discussing the water, or whatever it is, that the Hobbits drank. It seems to me, at least, to be very reminiscent of Othororir, nicely done. Odin's Mead, which gave the one who drank it substantial ability in poetry and scholarship. Oh, yeah. As you know, Tolkien was greatly influenced by Norse mythology, so there is no doubt that he was familiar with the story and the concept introduced in it. I'd be very interested in hearing your opinions or explanation of this scene. Sean? That's an interesting catch. It yeah. is, huh? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that much about Othororir, uh, what I do know, I owe to uh, Neil Gaiman in his oh, recent yeah. book, Norse Mythology, Absolutely. actually had a chapter on it. And it, I remember it being a pretty cool story about basically mm-hmm. how Odin acquired the meat of poetry and how he doles it out to inspire poets. And uh, actually good and bad poets get different <laughs> different samples of the mead. Um, check out the story if you're interested. I will. There's, there's no doubt that Tolkien knew the story. Oh, and sure. It yeah. is. It is quite possible that he was giving a slight nod to it here. I, I mean, I'd say it's it's only the slightest of nods. Uh, to me, I, I feel like 
Hobbits singing merrily is, I mean, you know, it's a bit of a step down from like the kind of poetic inspiration that true that the, the they're North not singing Smith in verse. Talking about. They're not they're not doing Tom right. work. Yeah, and they're and they're not you know they're not singing sagas. Uh, you oh, know, no, it's not that's true. This isn't. Yeah, so it's. It, I mean, I'm not saying it's not a nod. I think it's just a very slight nod if it is one. That's fair. Um, And I'd also point out, I mean, the drink that they're drinking doesn't really seem to be mead. Yeah, I think that's that's the clinch. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's looking, it's seemed like clear cold water, the text says. Whereas, you know, you look at something like the cordial they got from Gildor, which was pale golden and smelled like honey. Well, Mm. well, that seems like mead. So I think it's possible that Tolkien was ever so slightly hinting in that direction. So, I mean, I think you're onto something there, Ethan, but I do think it's probably just a very slight nod, probably just to show that Tom Bombadil is, you know, a a supernatural being in a Mm -hmm. general sense. I don't know. You have any thoughts? Well, you know, the only thought I have really on this is that when it comes to Tom, I'm not sure there's anything we can rule out. True. But I, I think the fact that it seemed to be clear cold water takes it out of the mead category. But truth of the matter is, as long as I don't have to pronounce the name of Odin's mead again, I'm good either way. So we're we're okay. Oh the roarier. Oh, oh the roarier. Okay. Oh, the roar. I don't even know if, if I'm you say it right. so. If you say so. I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying, folks. Well, do we have time for one more? Yeah, I think we probably do. Yeah. Uh, we've got one from Paul G in Colchester, England, who wrote to us with, "How did Farmer Maggot first meet Tom Bombadil? As the Shire did not appear to be part of Tom's lands, Maggot would have had to go to him." One way would be through the gate in the high hay used by Frodo and his colleagues, but this, I think, is the Brandybuck's private entrance, as referred to by Mary in A Conspiracy Unmasked, and I don't think its secret would be revealed to Maggot. Maggot could have reached Tom Bombadil's house via the Great East Road, but he would have had to travel right through the old forest or across the Barrow Downs to get there. No, I think Farmer Maggot met Tom Bombadil by rowing up the Withywindle. It's said that most hobbits regarded small boats with misgivings, (laughs) <laughs> Farmer Maggot could have been one of the minority who didn't. Mm-hmm. I don't know why Farmer Maggot made the journey in the first place. Perhaps he had a tookish sense of adventure, or perhaps he'd heard tales of Tom Bombadil from Bucklanders and wanted to see if they were true. I assume that Tom Bombadil would have taken Farmer Maggot to his house, although there's no mention of him meeting Goldberry. Hmm. And then Paul goes on to, to, to say a little bit about the poem, Bombadil Goes Boating, which we read from not too long ago. Yeah, yeah. And he, he talks about that scene in which he says there's a character who's said to be Tom Bombadil. He rows down the Withywindle to the Brandywine and is attacked by hobbits at Grindwall who shoot arrows at him. He says, I think that it's unlikely to be Tom Bombadil, but it could be a confused later folk memory of Farmer Maggot returning from a visit to his friend and being mistaken for an undesirable from the old forest. <laughs> Once more, thanks for taking the time to read my ramblings. Well, I there don't think go. they were really ramblings, Paul. Oh. Very, very intriguing thoughts. Thank you for those. And I don't know, Alan, what do you got? You know, I, they are interesting thoughts. Paul raises an interesting point about the poem Bombadil Goes Boating, which we read that that passage from in episode 116, the, the one about Bombadil coming to visit Maggot. And we didn't get mm-hmm. into this in that episode, but the poem is meant to be a Hobbit composition written by the Bucklanders sometime long after the events of the War of the Ring. Now, in the preface to the adventures of Tom Bombadil, Tolkien writes, and this is from within the frame of his own frame narrative, that this poem and the adventures of Tom Bombadil itself evidently come from the Buckland. They show more knowledge of that country and of the Dingle, the wooded valley of the Withywindle, than any hobbits west of the Marish were likely to possess. They also show that the Bucklanders knew Bombadil, though no doubt they had as little understanding of his powers as the Shire folk had of Gandalf's. Both were regarded as benevolent persons, mysterious maybe and unpredictable, but nonetheless comic. 
The poem, Bombadil Goes Boating, was probably composed much later and after the visit of Frodo and his companions to the house of Bombadil. Hmm, so it's not entirely clear whether Bombadil's visit to Maggot in the Marish in that poem was something that actually happened right. or whether it's just a story told in this poem much later. Yeah. Even though, I, I mean, I kind of like to believe it happened, but sure. yeah, it, it does seem kind of unlikely, I guess. It, it does, I admit. But so Paul is saying that he believes this story is apocryphal, that Tom Bombadil never actually came to visit Maggot. Maybe the real event that it's based on was actually Maggot returning from a visit to Bombadil being mistaken for a trespasser. It's an interesting suggestion. Uh, despite the poem, it does seem more likely that Maggot would have gone out to meet Tom rather than Tom coming to the Marish to visit Maggot, especially since Tom got his recent knowledge of events in the Shire from Maggot, not from visiting there himself. Yeah, and of course there is the fact that Tom Bombadil typically doesn't leave the borders of his own land. Yeah, that's kind of the big I mean, thing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're not 100% sure that he can't, right? True. We do know that he won't leave to help Frodo out on his quest. True. So, okay, let's assume that Maggot and Tom met somewhere in Tom's own land. Did okay. Maggot reach Tom by rowing up the Withywindle, as Paul says, or did he just take the East Road? I mean, hmm. I don't think we have any way of knowing. I mean, Maggot does identify more with the Bucklanders than with Hobbiton folk, and so maybe he is more fond of boats True, than, that could than be. we might think. Maybe. But I, don't, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of Maggot just meeting Tom Bombadil somewhere on the road. I mean... Possible. You know, remember that the East Road is not really all that dangerous if you're not being pursued by ringwraiths. Well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, remember the, the hobbits got off of the road because of the wraiths coming after right, them. And right. that's what sent them into the old forest. And that's where things mm -hmm. got kind of scary for them. Yeah. I see no reason why Maggot couldn't just take the road and meet Tom there somewhere within or close to the borders of Tom's own country. Sure. And, from that point, if Tom decided that he wanted to take Maggot back to his house to meet Goldberry or drink some tea or whatever, though we don't know for sure that any of that ever happened. <laughs> right. I mean, Maggot would be safe enough, so I could certainly see that happening. Sure. Well, folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Now, please be sure to join us again next week when we spend a bit more time with a mysterious vagabond with a rascally look. Folks, thanks again for listening, and thank you for making our common room on Facebook such a fun place to spend time. We want all of you to be a part of this conversation, and it doesn't stop when the episode ends. See the comments, questions, corrections, and Plenty more. of those, I would say. Plenty of those. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we have had, and I'm sure we will have more. Probably some to this episode. <laughs> yep. Uh, on Facebook at the Prancing Pony Podcast, on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. And a very special thank you to our patrons at the Kierdan's Contribution Tier. To May in Alaska, James in Virginia. Tamson in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, and Chad in Texas. Thank you all. Make sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and most of all, video of your most embarrassing moments while singing in a pub. And we mean that. I really want to see those. Are you sure about that? Okay. I'll let, the, right. I'll let you screen them first. But send those to Barlaman at the prancingponypodcast.com and, well, we'll try to get them onto our social media channels or into our next show. There you go. Well, however long we've had, it is still, as always, far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends. <laughs>